Next week is our Thanksgiving service, and so please come ready for that. It's the only week of the year where we don't actually give a, a preached message. It's the week of the year where we hear from you. So if you're new to Sovereign Grace, you've never done that before, we just provide it as an opportunity after singing. And I give a brief introduction, and then we really just hand it over to people that want to give a testimony from the year, maybe two, three, four minutes, maybe three minutes tops because there's so many different people. It's a real highlight of the year, so please come ready for that. But today we are continuing on in the book of Exodus. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 32. If you're making notes, I've called this message Hope of the World. And if you are new to Sovereign Grace, we've been in the book of Exodus for like ages. I think I started when I was about 17 or something. It feels like forever, but it's a really wonderful series because it really teaches us how we've been drawn out to be drawn in. We follow the story of Israel, how they've been drawn out of slavery in Egypt to be drawn into a relationship with the Lord. And yet in truth, it's reflective of a thing that the Lord has done for all of us, how he's brought us out of the slavery to sin and into a relationship with himself. This is the last message in the book of Exodus for this year. We won't actually be going back into Exodus till March. Next year we have some other things planned for January and February, but in March we have four left and then it will be Easter. And then... We are going to be doing some other stuff, and then we could eventually be going into the book of Colossians. But today we are in the book of Exodus. This is the last message for this year, but it is definitely last but not least. The lesson of the golden calf continues, and so let's read from verse 25 through to the end of verse 35. And when Moses saw the people had broken loose, Aaron had let, the, let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you will kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, This people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot out of your book, blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Let's pray. Lord, it is wonderful to worship you in song. Now it is a joy to worship you through listening. Lord, as we gather around your word, we gather around a word that speaks to us directly from you. These are your words. So would we hear you speaking to us this morning? In Jesus' precious name, amen. 
in a part of being human, I think, is to, on occasion in our lives, find ourselves having heroes. People that we really look up to, people that we hold aloft, and people that we start to think they can simply do nothing wrong. And so we spend time thinking about them, and as we engage with them, and as we engage about them, we just think, man, they are so amazing all the time. They're so amazing. But the harsh reality is, at some point in our lives, we invariably realize that actually, they're people just like us. They have failings, they have difficulties, they have problems, just like we do. I know for many people, me included growing up, I was like this with my parents. When you're young, you just think your parents are everything. You think that your dad is the strongest person in the entire world. He lifts you up and puts, it, puts you on his shoulders. It's like, man, you can do anything. My dad, I, certainly when I was young, I felt could do anything. We used to buy old houses and then live in them and do them up. And so my dad could plaster, he could rewire, he could, do, he could put skirting boards up, he could tile, he could do bathrooms. I was like, my dad can just do everything, absolutely everything that's needed. My mom was like the quintessential Mary Poppins. She would just do everything for us. She loved us. And whenever we had a question about anything, this is before the days of Google and the internet, my mom would always know the answer. She was like the oracle. But as I got older, I realized, actually, my mom and dad, they're just like me. They have failings. They have difficulties. They make mistakes. They do things wrong. I think we often do this with heroes of the faith as well. People like Martin Luther and C.H. Spurgeon and C.S. Lewis and Jonathan Edwards. Man that we can look up to, you start to get fascinated by them. You think, man, these guys were amazing. And then you keep reading about them and you realize, yeah, they were amazing, but not that amazing enough. They had their weaknesses. They had their challenges. They had their sins. And in headline, that's exactly what happens, I think, in this text. When you realize that one greater than Moses is going to need to come. And that's what this text is all about. The reality that one greater than Moses is going to be needed to come. Moses is a fine man, a wonderful leader. He can do many things, and we should honor him and hold him in high esteem. But given the gravity of all that Israel has done before the Lord, one greater than Moses is going to be needed to come. And he did come. And the reality that he came should influence and affect each and every one of us in this room. This text actually points us, I think, to Christmas, if we just pay attention to what we hear. Three points then this morning. Number one, Moses, the wonderful and honorable leader. Number two, Israel's greatest problem. And then number three, God's glorious remedy. Number one, Moses, the wonderful and honorable leader. As you get to know Moses throughout the book of Exodus, and we were in chapter 32, so we spent a lot of time with him. If you've been a part of Sovereign Grace for some time, we spent the last year with Moses. You get to know him, and as you get to know him through this book, you start to wonder, is there anything that Moses can't do? I mean, what an incredible leader he is. Have you ever seen the film Ten Commandments with Charles Heston? Who's ever seen that? Okay, good. The rest of you are not telling the truth. I know. So you've probably seen it at some point in your lives. You're just embarrassed about it. There's this wonderful film by Charles Heston, and you've probably seen the front cover because it's Charles Heston dressed as Moses with the Ten Commandments held aloft. He's got this long flowing hair. He's got this bronze chest because he's just probably got sunburnt from up there. And he just looks like a man's man, and you're just aware, oh, yes, he's a guy that I could rally behind. Well, that's what Moses is just like. 
throughout this book. Moses is the only person in the world that marches up to Pharaoh, the most wonderful and powerful leader on the earth at that time, and he demands that you let my people go. And Pharaoh, after plagues, does indeed let the people of God go. Moses then single-handedly marches the people of God, some two million of them, through the Red Sea on dry ground, and he then leads them to the side and then starts singing. It would appear that he's a worship leader as well. Is there nothing he can't do? And so he starts singing, leading these people in praise at the right time. Then he brings water from the rock. He calls down manna from heaven for them to eat. He alone then is able to go up to the top of the mountain to engage with God face to face. And it would appear when Moses speaks to God, God actually listens. When he intercedes for these two million people, God actually listens and sometimes even relents on the back of his leadership. It's huge. And then when he comes down the mountain, all bronzed up, he starts to see that these people are wasting their lives and so he smashes the Ten Commandments. He burns their golden calf, he melts it down, he scatters it on the water, he makes them drink it. And then he addresses his brother, he's not a chicken, he he addresses his brother right in the face and tells Aaron, this is wrong what you've done. I mean, this is a man's man, this is a wonderful leader, and he should be appropriately held in high esteem. Moses is without doubt a wonderful and honorable leader. And in fact, when you trace Moses' story, and you trace it through the New Testament, and you see how similar Moses is to Christ, you realize he's even far more impressive than maybe you first realized. See, particularly when you examine the book of Matthew, you realize Moses and Christ were actually very similar. Shortly after Moses' birth, then, he was rushed away to a place of safety. Remember, he was put in a basket. He goes up the river Nile. He's saved ultimately by the king or the pharaoh of Egypt at the time. But the pharaoh of Egypt at the time had actually ordered that all the Hebrew baby boys must be killed. But one and a half thousand years later, Jesus is born. And King Herod at the time, the jealous king, made out a decree that all the baby boys must be killed. So Jesus is rushed away to a place of safety where? Egypt. And that's how he's saved. Just like Moses. Moses then, he wanted to save the people of God. But to do that, he would have to leave behind his royal existence. He would have to leave the very presence of Pharaoh and royalty and all the privileges that would bring to go and identify with his true people so that he could lead them and save them. Christ does exactly the same thing. He leads the throne room of heaven, the glories of being with God himself, to become man just like us, to identify with us so that he can ultimately lead us and save us. Matthew chapter 3 talks all about that in Matthew chapter 2. And then Moses, after his baptism through the Red Sea, he's led into the wilderness where he spends 40 days and nights And then he heads up the mountain to encounter God. And when he comes down from encountering God, he plays his part as the divine lawgiver for the people of God. Wind the clock forward to Jesus. Jesus, after he is baptized, spends 40 days and nights in the wilderness being tempted. 
And he then, after succeeding that temptation, walks up the mountain to give us the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 4, where he starts to be the divine lawgiver and explain the way the law works now in the kingdom of God. See the similarities? Like Matthew is deliberately trying to draw us to those realities because he's trying to help us see Moses was good, but he's also trying to help us see Moses wasn't all that good though. One greater than Moses is going to be needed. One would be forgiven, as you just examined the book of Exodus, one would be forgiven to thinking that Moses can do just about everything. But he can't. For all the ways that Moses is like Christ, and for all the things that he can actually do, there is one thing he can't do. The thing that Israel actually needs the most. He can't do. Because he can't, verse 32, he cannot atone for their sins. Verse 32, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses is saying there to the Lord, because he says it in verse 30 as well, listen, I get it. Someone has got to pay the price for their sin, for their sin to be atoned for. Somebody has got to atone. So take me. Moses can do many things. But what is very clear throughout this text is he cannot do that. Brings me on to point two, Israel's greatest problem. For all the things that Moses can do for the people of God, he cannot atone for their sin. See, their worship of the golden calf is indeed a deadly and serious sin. And they have indeed broken the clear commands of the Lord. I mean, the very first commandment, God tells them, you shall have no other gods before me. Eh, broken that one. Not gone well. I left you 40 days. Already you have another God before you. You've built this golden calf and you're worshipping him, claiming that this is the one that led you to freedom. Okay, that's not gone well. Commandment two, you shall not make yourself any carved image. Not gone well. Broken him. Commandment three, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. They had without doubt done that. The name of the Lord, Yahweh, that had indeed led them to freedom. They're now passing that and claiming it was this golden calf instead. They are ridiculing the name of the Lord by trying to look at the name of the Lord and put the similarity with his work and say, no, it's not actually him. It was this calf instead. This is indeed a horror before the Lord. Moses knows it in verse 30 and 31. He says, you have sinned a great sin because you have made for yourself gods of gold. And so they had. This was hideous before the Lord. He actually says in verse 25 that what they had actually done was broken loose. Look at verse 25. It says, and when Moses saw the people had broken loose, Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Hey, what does that mean? What does it mean to... Break loose. How does that work? What is it exactly being mentioned there? Well, to this whole premise of being broken loose, it's a unique phrase that you actually see in the Bible. And each and every time it talks about a person or a group of people 
completely and utterly lacking any self-control. What he's helping them see is this is what you are like. I've left you for 40 days, and now you are singing and partying around a golden calf. I mean, this scene that Moses comes back to is raucous, it is indecent, it is without doubt bordering on the obscene. Forty days earlier, they are singing praises to the Lord. Now they are singing praises to a golden calf that they are worshipping and partying around. There is indecent behavior happening throughout Israel. And don't think for just a few moments it was just like a few people, that most of the two million was probably fine. No, it clearly says up front in verse 3, if you examine all the way back there, it says, so all the people, all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. All the people. He doesn't say, well, just a few. No, this is, this is clearly a national sin. On a national scale, on a grand scale, the people are willingly saying, okay, I'll take everything off. Just make the gold calf. We want another God. This is deadly and this is serious before the Lord. And accordingly, this is a deadly and serious sin that is deserving of punishment. See, make no mistake, we've already seen Moses respond to their sin. We saw it in verses 19 and 20. Moses comes down from the mount, and when he gets to the edge of the mount, he smashes the two tablets of the Ten Commandments before them. It's symbolic. He's trying to help the people of God see, you've already blown it. And then he takes their golden calf and he ridicules it. He burns it down, grinds it into powder, puts it on the water, makes them drink it ultimately so that they will defecate it. He is humiliating and mocking this golden calf, helping them see your golden calf is a nobody. And then he addresses Aaron and confronts Aaron as to what on earth he was doing. Moses has had his response. But now it is God's turn to respond to these people's sin. He does it through his servant Moses, and his response, I think, is confronting, it is clear, and it is sobering. Look at verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered Around him. Listen, I want you to imagine the drama in this text. You have just seen Moses, your leader, come down from the mountain. He is clearly a touch irritated about all that has gone on. He is a mighty leader, and everybody's like, Yes, Moses, sorry, Moses. Oh, this is so awful, Moses. Aaron is there trying to make excuses, but really, he realizes, uh, yeah, Yeah, this isn't a good thing. The next day, Moses gets up and he says, All right, who's on the Lord's side? Make your decision, Israel. It says in that moment, the whole tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes, we don't know why it was them. I mean, Moses himself was a Levi, so there's a bit of family loyalty going on. We don't really know. But this tribe of Levi, it stands up and they all stand to be with Moses. And then God gives them a task. Verse 27. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. 
I doubt any of them saw that coming. So you want us to look out at these people and those people that have rebelled greatly against you, even though I might be related to them, you want me to kill them? This was like the ultimate test, wasn't it? But in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus, who is meek and mild, says similarly, actually. At one point in the text, he says, listen, if you're going to really follow me, I need to be first in your heart. I need to be greater than your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters and your children. I need to be first. It's confronting. This is the ultimate test for the Levites, but it is a test that they pass. Verse 28. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. You know, this may seem then to us to be a grossly exaggerated punishment for their crimes. I mean, it's just a bit of idolatry, right? I mean, they made a mistake. Yes. But could you not just let them off? I mean, you know... You'd gone for 40 days or 40 nights. It happened. You find yourself making excuses for the people of God right now and trying to soften it, take the corners off it. I know I do. This can seem at face value to be a grossly exaggerated punishment for their crimes. But the truth is, that's not how God sees our sin at all. And the truth is, This text then gives us a wonderful opportunity, I think, to reorientate ourselves to the horrors of sin and the painful reality of the wrath of God that is pointed at our sin. Something that in Christianity, even in church, we don't like to think about or talk about all too often. So when it comes to our sin, we like to minimize it and excuse it, don't we? As we saw last week with Aaron. He comes back down, Moses talks to him, he's like, oh yeah, listen, um, it was awkward, it was the people, in fact it was you, and then I just, you know, they sort of, I I did this gold thing into the fire and it just popped out. We just like to minimize our sin, we like to excuse our sin, if it's not really sin at all. And then in the same breath of minimizing our sin, when it comes to the consequences of our sin, which is God's wrath, we like to completely ignore it. We don't want to think about that. But my friends, God's wrath is real. And God's wrath is righteously pointed on sin. And it is frightening. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, in the Bible, God's wrath is a function of his holiness. His wrath or anger is not the explosion of a bad temper or a chronic inability to restrain his irritability, but rather a just and principled opposition to sin. God's holiness is so amazing and glorious that it demands that he be wrathful with those of his creatures who defy him, sly his majesty, turn their noses at his words and works, and insist on their own independence, even though every breath they breathe, not to mention their very existence, depends on his providential care. If God were to gaze at sin and rebellion, shrug his shoulders and mutter, well, I'm not too bothered. I can forgive these people. I really don't care what they do. Surely there would be something morally deficient about him. Should God care nothing of Hitler's outrages? 
Should God care nothing of my rebellion of your, or your rebellion? If he acted this way, he would ultimately discount his own significance, sully his own glory, besmirch his own honor, and soil his own integrity. And so he would. For God to just turn a blind eye to their sin, to our sin, and just be like, hey, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. It would ultimately discount his own significance, sully his own glory, besmirch his own honor, and soil his own integrity. And in chapter 32, the people of God had soiled the integrity of God himself. He's made a covenant with them. He saved them by his grace. And they had completely forsaken him. They had betrayed him. It is no different to somebody sleeping with somebody else on their honeymoon. I've just married you, but now I'm going to be with him. That's what the people of God have done to God in this circumstance. And you may be wondering then in verses 28, why those 3,000? I mean, there's two million of them, right? Why just those 3,000? Bible doesn't say. No one knows. Most commentators say most likely they were the instigators, they were the ringleaders, they were those most unremorseful. So even now they're still not coming to their senses and they're still rallying the troops to before serving the golden calf instead. But we don't really know. But the much bigger question, I think, and the far more important question, I believe, is why not the other 1,997,000 as well? The whole nation it's in. So why just these 3,000? The whole nation had failed. This was failure and sin on a grand scale. And it would appear, to be honest, that Moses, as he stands there, is thinking that same thing too. He's away, hang on. You've only killed 3,000. There are another 1,997,000 sinful people here. And they've not yet been forgiven. Yes, you've looked over their sin in your grace, but there is no forgiveness yet for them. No atonement has been made. Your justice as an appropriate justice before the Lord has not been met. We made a blood covenant with you. And there's only 3,000 people yet shedded blood. What about the rest of them? And so Moses, out of love for the people of God, meets with God once again. And he says the following in verses 30 to 32. I think these are some of the most endearing verses, if not just in this book, then in the entire Bible. This is what Moses does for the people of God. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. It's beautiful. Moses is standing before the Lord as their leader and saying, listen, Lord, I get it. They have sinned before you. So would you take me? 
I'm thinking, maybe you could just forgive him. Moses actually knows that's not going to be happening. But I understand why he's trying. Lord, maybe, maybe you just forgive him. No, no, I didn't think so. Well, if not, then, then listen, block me out of your book. This book of life, this book of salvation that, oh Lord, I know you have. Block me out of it. Keep them in it. Let me atone for their sin. Let me be their substitute. And then in verse 33, God responds to Moses. He says, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. In effect, what he's saying in this moment is, Moses, I love you. Moses, you cannot pay for their sin. You cannot be their substitute. You cannot be their atonement. Moses, you are good. You have been a wonderful leader to the people of God, Moses, but you can't do that. It's not possible. Moses, you'll remember an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Moses, to atone for the people of God's sin means that you would have to be sinless in the first place. And Moses, you're not. You're guilty just like the rest of them. So Moses, there are many things you can do for my people, but Moses, you cannot atone. And you know, as the sun then begins to set on this text, things can appear, I think, somewhat despondent, can't they? God has just told Moses, listen, I love you, well done, thank you, but you cannot atone for the people's sins. And Moses would know. Well, that means they're not really forgiven then. The price hasn't been paid yet. And then he tells Moses, Moses, listen, your work is nonetheless not yet done. I want you to get up, I want you to lead my people, lead them into the promised land, Moses. You may not be able to atone for them, but you can still lead them, and I want you to lead them. What a stroke of mercy that was. It's clear they're not going to be struck off from the book of life today. More time is going to be given. But then he does tell Moses, in verse 34, Nevertheless, a day will come when I will visit their sin upon them. Most likely what God is talking there is about Babylon, the Babylonian exile. You see, this people of God, they do eventually reach the promised land. It's not them, but it's their children. They get into the promised land and they are fruitful and they multiply, but they keep worshipping idols again and again and again. They are an adulterous people again and again and again. And so God ultimately sends the ultimate punishment on them, which is the Babylonian exile. They're removed from their place and taken into captivity. Most likely that's what's being talked about there in verse 34. And then in verse 35, it says, Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. We don't know exactly what that plague was. It wouldn't appear that it was very long or very enduring. It would appear that it's probably some type of discipline on the people of God in this moment to help them see this is wrong what you have done. You must not give yourself to worshipping idols. And yet as the sun begins to set on this text, it can appear at first glance somewhat despondent. And yet in reality, my friends, as the sun begins to set on this text, I submit to you that they are actually far, far, far from being without hope. Why? 
Well, first and foremostly, because of the very instrument that God had just given Moses when he was up the mountain. What? The tabernacle. God knew exactly what was happening to the people down below. Even now they're making idols. They're starting to worship idols. They're starting to squander against me. Moses, listen, get your pen and paper out. I want you to listen up. You're going to build a tabernacle for me. And what is it going to show my people again and again and again? It's going to show my people the way home. The way in their sin to be in my presence. The way through a sacrifice of another that my presence will still be open to them. They are far, far from hope because in just a few days time, they will be starting to build the tabernacle that will teach them again and again and again that there is a way back to Eden. There is a way back to the presence of God and it is through the sacrifice of another. And even now, they are far, far away from being without hope. Because even now, the one who is greater than Moses was preparing to come. That's my third point, God's glorious remedy. See, God has always promised that one greater than Moses would come. That there will be one who would come. And he would make it possible for us as sinful people to once again encounter the presence of God, to be in his presence of God and to know him like we should have always known him all along, but which we squandered in our sin. God promised that very early on. And in all reality, it's a promise that he made long, long ago to us. In Genesis 3.15, just three chapters in on the Bible, as Adam and Eve are taken out from the garden, taken out from the presence of God, God promises that one will come, and although Satan will bruise his heel, he will crush his head. There will be one that will come, and he will get you back into the garden. He will get you back into the presence of God himself. At the end of the book of Genesis, then, in Genesis chapter 49, you discover that this one to come, this serpent crusher, is going to be a king. And not just any king, he's going to come as a lion of the tribe of Judah. So right at the end of the story of Joseph and a technical coat that we all think is all about Joseph and his coat, isn't it beautiful? Not particularly. It's actually all about Judah. God was using Joseph ultimately to save his people, but ultimately as a big part of that was saving Judah. Why Judah? Well, because in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is dying, he pronounces a blessing on each of his kids. And when he gets to Judah, he says, Judah. Judy, you will always hold the scepter and the staff of rule until he comes, the one to whom it belongs. Even then, he's pointing him to the reality that this serpent crusher, he's going to be a king and he's going to come through the line of the tribe of Judah and he's not just going to be a lion, he's also going to be a lamb. And so when we get to the book of Exodus and we discover all about the Passover lamb and how this Passover lamb has to be pure and without blemish with no broken bones, but then killed at the right time and put on the doorpost of each family so that as the angel passes through, they are saved through the blood of the lamb. We discover then time and time again, also through the tabernacle and the sacrifices, that this one to come... That's going to get us back into the presence of God. He's not just going to be a lion. He's going to be a lamb, a sacrificial lamb who will give his life away as a ransom for many. Who will pour out his blood so that my blood doesn't need to be spilled. Who will give his life so that my life 
can be protected. And in the Old Testament, then, there are pointers again and again to what he's going to be like. Over 500 years in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies that point to the coming of this lamb. Micah chapter 5 tells you where he's going to be born. Explains about Bethlehem. It also tells you in the Bible about his life, about his work, about his appearance. 29 prophecies in the Old Testament point to his death, what it's going to be like, what is going to happen. Over 500 years, voice after voice after voice, he's going to be a lion, he's going to be a lamb, this is where he's going to be born, this is what he's going to do, this is how he's going to die. And it is the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, that doesn't just tell us about him in a way it's written, he actually points right at him. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, we read, Behold the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. What a precious moment that is in history, don't you think? They've all been waiting for him. Oh, come. Oh, come, Emmanuel. We need you. And John says, he's here. This is him. The one who comes to take away the sin of the world, the sacrificial lamb. The one who will atone for your sin. The one who will give his life as a ransom for many. Listen up. He's come. And he's right there. And he points at Jesus. And Jesus himself says, you know what? I am he. That's exactly why I came. And time and time again. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, Even the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hope had come. The Lamb of God had come. God's righteous wrath could be appeased through the blood of a perfect sacrificial lamb. And Jesus says, I am he. And when Jesus then died on the cross, there is so much put into the words, it is finished. One of the most amazing things about that which is put into those words, it is finished, is my atonement now for your sin. It is finished. It's done. God's righteous wrath has been appeased. My pure blood is being spilt for you. I am doing what Moses could never do. I'm atoning for you. Isn't it wonderful? For Moses and the people of God some three and a half thousand years ago, they should not have been despondent as they left this scene. Because the tabernacle would teach them again and again and again, hope is coming. There is one to come who will be your sacrifice once and for all, who will get you back into the presence of God. Moses, Nice try, kid. It ain't you. But there is one coming who it is. And my friends, as we look on now to Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, I submit to you, he is our hope as well. Our only hope. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that's where the great exchange takes place. His perfection for your imperfection his sacrifice for your life it is the glories of the atonement and when we pay attention it is what this chapter always points us to one 
greater than Moses is needed. And then as you continue turning the pages, you realize, oh my, one greater than Moses has come. And his name is Jesus. And he is the way home. Well, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Oh, what a happy line that is, don't you think? In him, in Christ alone, we have redemption through his blood. It's all we needed. It's everything we have. And then he continues in chapter 2 verse 13, and now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near By the blood of Christ. One greater than Moses is needed. One greater than Moses has come. And his name is Jesus. My friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and you're wondering, does God really want to be with me? I mean, Dave, if you knew me and you knew my life, you would realize I have blown it like again and again and again. And hey, not many people know that, but if I'm honest with myself, that's the reality of my life. Does God want to be with you? Oh, yeah. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loves you that he sent his son to die for you, to be your propitiation, to be your atonement, to be your sacrifice, so that you could be completely forgiven of your sin and clothed in his righteousness and then walk into the very presence of the one who made you. The one who it says in scripture, uh, there is joy at his right hand and pleasures forevermore. Sometimes our lives are so disastrous because quite frankly, we are spending all our time outside the presence of God. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you, put your faith in him today and know forgiveness and reconciliation and adoption. Know what it is to spend time with the one who made you. It will change your life. And if you are here today and you are a Christian, I simply want to encourage you. Hope has come. And hope has come for you. His name is Jesus. And so Merry Christmas. This is what Christmas is all about. Would he be our gaze? Would he be our delight? And would he be our worship? Let's pray. Lord, without doubt, every piece of scripture ultimately whispers your name. And Lord, I do thank you for showing us in Exodus chapter 32 over three different weeks how all this ultimately points to you. Lord, our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts have a habit of wanting to run off and worship so many different things. We so readily exchange the creator for the created. And by the time we realize we're doing it, it's too late. We're cut off from you. We've damaged our relationship and we stand guilty as charged. And Lord, though you are a God of love and mercy and grace and peace, You're also a God of justice and holiness. What then can we do? Our sin has to be paid for. Our sin has to be atoned for. Lord, I thank you that the remedy to that was your son. You sent him for us. Born to Mary. 
born in a manger. But in reality, the King of kings and Lord of lords who is giving his life away as a ransom for many. Lord, would you always be our hope? Would you always be our peace? Would you always be our delight? You're worthy of all praise.